Well, I'm gonna guess I'm probably not who you expected. If it makes you feel any better, I'm not either. I uh, was not at all planning on being up here to preach today, but, uh, but here I am. Uh, if you're a guest of ours, or maybe you're joining us online for the first time, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at the Creek, and this is a fitting ending for what has been a very, very special weekend for me. Um, I hope yours ha- has gone better than mine. I've entitled my weekend, uh, Tile Mageddon because my wife decided that uh, in a series of fixer-upper-inspired projects that we were going to tile our guest bathroom. Now, if, if you know me at all, you know I don't do home improvement projects. Um, and it's not because I'm lazy. I swear I'm not lazy. Um, if I am, she can tell me after, after the service is over. Um, I feel like I'm a pretty hard worker. But it's because home improvement projects, it's kind of like those people who buy trucks I don't know, maybe, maybe you're, you're one of those people, you know, you, you bought a truck at one point in your life and all of a sudden in your group of friends, you became the truck person who anytime anything needed transported, you got called. And it wasn't just good enough that you supplied the truck, right? Like, that, like the, nobody's ever courteous enough to be like, oh, you brought the truck, you're driving it. So we'll load this up for you and you can just drive it to point B and then we'll unload it. No, no, you then became the driver with the car and the muscle. You had to do it all. And so when you learn home improvement skills, at least this is what, I've, what has always been my fear, you then become the person, the sucker who gets suckered. You're the one that everyone calls because you have the tools and you also have the information. You have the knowledge. You know how to do it. So I have never wanted to be the sucker who gets suckered. I love people, but I would rather love people from like a stage and tell people that I love them instead of doing their home improvement projects. I'm not, not interested in that at all until my wife decided this year that we had things to do and I was going to be the one to do them because that's cheaper and that, that's just the way we roll. So uh, she conned our Somerset campus pastor, Nate, hi buddy, uh, into coming over to our house yesterday at 8 a.m. God love him. And he was there till, till 5 a.m. Me and him in a teeny tiny guest bathroom tiling the walls. And it was glorious. And, and while, while we were, while we were, were doing that, um, I, I failed to see all the text messages on my phone saying, hey buddy, you're preaching tomorrow. So I, I saw my phone in my texts at about 5.30. So this is, this is gonna be me preaching with less than 24 hours notice. You're welcome. We'll see. We, we will. Uh, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, good. But the, the reason for all the home improvement projects is because my wife is nesting. And for some of you, that, that's new information because uh, she, she, see, nesting is what we say ladies do when, when they're, they're pregnant. Throughout the, this whole COVID thing hasn't been enough drama for my family. We decided we wanted to add a, a third baby into the mix. So, so she's currently pregnant with our third child, gonna be another girl. So I am now the ultimate girl dad, also in the market for a shotgun. So if you know anyone selling, I'm buying. And she decided that, you know, th- this time around, we were going to improve all, all, all of the things. But she also decided that this was going to be a secret pregnancy because we found out that she was pregnant in, amidst COVID. And in her mind, what would be more hilarious than just showing up to church after all this is over with a random third kid? Like, I guess she just pictured us like busting in the door with a, you know, random child. And it was like, what is this? Where this? We just found it. Well, we don't know. We just, now now there's five of us. Yay. But it didn't happen. You know, quarantine didn't last long enough. And it quickly dawned on her that she was going to have to go into public, but she still wanted to try to hide it. Now, 
watching women get ready in, in the mornings, for the most part, this isn't all across the board, is an, an entertaining Olympic event. Watching a pregnant woman who's trying to hide it get ready when she's doing three months, an entertaining Olympic event. And it's been, it's, I, I love the fact that all of this has happened at the same time that as a church, we've chosen to talk about joy. Because in my house, there is none. <laughs> none at all. And, and I have, have the, the blessing also known as the curse of having, well, I, I always tell our, our students, I'm a student pastor, by the way, if you can't tell, of, of telling our students that I have a broken face because I smile at everything. Like, I, I don't know what it is. You tell me good news, I smile. You tell me bad news, I smile. Like, I remember when I first started going to, to funerals and I would take Gabby with me, I'd be in line and I'd be like, I don't know what to do. She's like, just don't smile. Like, it is not the time for that. Tell your face to act appropriately. And so that, that doesn't go over so well when your wife is, is pregnant and all the feels and the emotions and she's trying to, to hide her, her pregnancy. And in any argument, she has the ultimate trump card. I'm growing a human being. Shut up. She wins all of them. So... You know, I, I'm sure you're probably asking, what does any of this have to do with this entire sermon series? Like, what does all of this have to do with joy? You, it's Tyle Mageddon, secret pregnancy, didn't, not, not so secret anymore because she decided that just venting to me wasn't enough because I smiled all the time. She wanted to be able to vent to you all on, on social media, so you're welcome. She, she publicly announced it last week. In, in addition to, you know, a, a husband ultimate girl dad and student pastor here, uh, which means I get to work with a really fun team of, uh, of people that lead our student ministry at our Williamsburg campus or Somerset campus and here in London. So if you have a middle school or a high school student and they're not here on Wednesday nights or at one of our upfronts at one of our campuses, they're in the wrong place. Seven o'clock, do whatever you need to do to get them here. I promise it'll be the best investment you make in the life of your kid ever. So just shameless plug, make sure you get your students to, to upfront. But as, as, a, as a dad, and then also as somebody whose job it is to disciple and cultivate the faith of the next generation, I find myself asking and wrestling with a question. And it's, it's a question that I wrestle with quite regularly and it's this, what kind of faith am I, I personally, what kind of faith are, are we, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we're a part of the church, what kind of faith are we passing on? Now we are blessed here at the Creek Church to have, to have a lead pastor, who texts me at five o'clock to tell me I'm preaching, but also who forces us as a church to ask this question on a pretty regular basis, because that's not something that the church at large, Big C, always has to come face to face with. But this is a question that we, that we ask our church on a pretty regular basis, yearly at least, and, and, and we answer. We, we, we staff to make sure we're cultivating the, the, the faith of the next generation. We program to make sure that, that we're doing that. But this is a question that I ask quite often. And when, 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 I, give you, when I give you my answer, I want you to, to bear this in mind. I am not nearly as intelligent or as eloquent as, as Pastor Trevor. So if it helps, think of me as more of a blunt, a blunt weapon this morning, a, a blunt instrument, all right? That is less eloquent and less intelligent. And yes, I am trying to get brownie points with my boss. But I answer this question with this statement right here. I believe that as the church, as an individual, that I want, I want to present a faith to, to, to my little girls. And I want to present a faith to the next generation. And, and anybody, whoever walks into our doors with a faith that is irresistible. And what I mean isn't that we have the coolest services in town. And isn't that we have the, the, the best lights or the best smoke or it's the most entertaining or the guy on stage is the funniest, it's okay, I know I'm not. That's not what I mean. Because the church and faith is more, more than a service and it's more than a building, it's, it's a people. 
And, and, and I believe that the faith that I represent with my life, that the faith that we represent for those of us who call ourselves God's people, we call ourselves Christians, that it should be irresistible. So much so that when people walk into our homes, they're presented with a version of Christianity that's enticing to where they may think what we believe is crazy and loony, but dang it, there's just something about us and they can't shake it. And they want to be around these, these Jesus followers. They want to be around these Christians. They want to be around these church people. And, and, and how we create this faith that, that is irresistible, there's a lot of different parts to it, but it starts with a faith that is true and with a faith that is pure. Now, let me explain this a little bit because for some of you, you, maybe you grew up in church and when people start talking about truth and purity, you have connotations of a certain kind of preacher or a certain kind of church. But for, for, for the people who are outside of our walls, for the people who aren't Jesus followers, what they need is to see a faith that is defined by King Jesus. What they need is to see a faith that finds its truth, that finds its idea of what is right, of what is beautiful, of what is good, of what is pure, based on what God says. Not what culture says, not what anybody else says, because truth is not relative, it's not up for debate, because we aren't the ones who come up with it. We are the ones who were given it from God. And so what they need to see is a group of people who are uncompromising and unflinching to what is true. Not because we're super intelligent, because let me just break it to you, I'm not, neither are you. Not because we beat everybody else to it or we're good or we're better than anybody else. Oftentimes I've found that Jesus followers, we get to the right answer in spite of ourselves. At least that's, that's been my story. Like God saved me and changed me on no basis of, of, of my own, not because of anything that I did. And your story, I reckon, if you're a Jesus follower, is the exact same. And what you know to be good and true and right and best, you didn't come up with it. As a matter of fact, most times I, I have to go towards good and right and true and best, kicking and screaming, because it's not what I want. The, the ideas that God gives me and the facts that God gives me on what could be and on what should be and on what is right and what is best, they aren't mine. And oftentimes they fly in the face of what our culture says should be right or should be tolerated or should be okay. And what the world outside of the church needs is for Jesus followers to plainly call a spade a spade, to, to plainly call right, right, and wrong, wrong. And sometimes that means we can hold hands with the people outside of the church and agree with them and link arms and say, yeah, the direction you're going, it's right. And sometimes it means we're gonna be at odds with the views that other people have. And we have to learn how to disagree with grace and with love. And that's very, very difficult because a lot of times the people that deal with truth and purity aren't so great with the whole grace and love part. And they're also not so good at the whole real part, the authentic piece. Because a lot of us whose story is that you grew up in a church that majored on truth and purity and, and right and wrong and truth they weren't so great at being authentic and they weren't so great at admitting to the fact and we aren't so great at admitting that we aren't perfect, that we're broken, that we're messed up, that we got to where we are in spite of ourselves. And we're all imperfect people. Now, not only are there these, these two big pieces of truth and purity and, and, and being real, but for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who, are a, 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 who call Jesus our King and our Lord, who are a part of his kingdom, there's a certain kingdom culture that's supposed to exist 
in our midst, in our families, in our homes, in our churches. Like when you walk in, there's supposed to be like an environment, like a feeling. I don't know if you've ever like walked into like, you know, like a, a local rivalry game and there's just a feeling in the air, it's palpable. There's supposed to be this culture and this feeling amongst God's people. And, and a guy named Paul, he, he's gonna write about it in a letter that he wrote to some Jesus followers in a place called Galatia. And, and he says, your culture, what you should be like, what you should look like as a Jesus follower, the, your, 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 your personality traits, your, your traits, they, they should be this. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Maybe you grew up going to church camp. You, you sang that when I read it. It's okay, I did too. We're all scarred together. There, 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 there's no rule against this stuff. Like no one ever leaves church because there's too much of this. Like, gosh, I couldn't stand it. They were too loving. Like those people were just too dang joyful. I couldn't stand it. I had to get out of there. They were so patient. I kept messing up and messing up and messing up and gosh darn it, they were so patient. That's, that's not what we do, right? People don't leave church because of this. Like this isn't what causes church splits. This isn't what causes drama. This isn't what causes any of that. This isn't why an entire generation or for the most part, an entire generation is growing up and walking away. It's not because this, this is there. It's because this isn't there. See, for, for people, at least in, in my line of work, and I feel like for, for a lot of us who call ourselves Jesus followers, who call Jesus king, we repeatedly get truth right. We're so good at truth. And we're always wanting to fight for what is true and stand up against those who would compromise. But historically, and for me, and I, I, probably for a lot of us, we repeatedly, we get that culture wrong. God intended for us to be a people that in this, in this series we've been talking about who are joyful. But unfortunately, what many of us have experienced, many people who have grown up in church and walked away and, and maybe one day, someday that could even be your story is that the church rarely is actually joyful and God's people are rarely if ever actually joyful, but many times we are joyless. And that's what's inspired this, this whole series. You know, Pastor Trevor looked around, not just at, at our church, but at the church at large and, and was kind of asking the question, what do we need right now in the midst of everything that's going on, all that's wrong and broken and insane in the world, and there is much, what, what, what could we do with a dose of? And he, he came to, to, to this, this place of joy. And I think it's a terrific answer. But what I find personally and, and listen, when I found out I was preaching at like, you know, 5, 5.30, uh, I came here and prayed and prayed and prayed because nothing's going to make you pray like a lot and really hard than realizing you're going to have to preach in front of a lot of people and you have no clue what to say. Like, I don't know if you've been tracking with this series all about joy, but like there's been a lot of really great stuff said. And, and there's been a lot, of, I mean, pretty much they have exhausted the Bible on verses about joy. Like there, there, was, there was slim pickings left for me. And, and I, I was racking my brain on like, okay, what am I going to say? Like, what can I contribute to this conversation about joy? But I, I, I got to the place where, you know, when I, we started this series, I loved it. Because remember, my face is broken. I love joy. Woo, that's me. That's, that's just my personality. And I feel like everybody could use a good, a good dose of joy. Like as a whole, humanity just needs to lighten up and y'all need to not take yourself so seriously. Me, me included at times, I'm, I'm there too. But even though there's been lots of great advice given and all of these great 
principles and platitudes and plithy one-liners. I would say by and large for most of us, when we wake up on Monday after we hear the sermon on Sunday, our lives aren't joyful, are they? They're joyless. I, I've, been, I've been at church for like, you know, 30 years, almost 31. I'll be 31 in November. And I, I can count the time that I was in the womb because I was also in church. And there, I have heard so many sermons about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I bet you have too. But for all the sermons that we hear about what the kingdom culture should look like, what the fruit of the spirit should look like in our lives, we hear the sermons and you read the books and it'll be good for like a day or a week or maybe even a month. And then something happens. We drift. We, we, we get the really good application steps and you, know, you make your gratitude list and you read it for like a week and then you lose it or you get too busy and the kids are screaming before bed so you don't have time to look at it. And we get really good at it for a week and then we drift and then we forget and we lose sight of all the great teachings that we heard. And it's why every... 10, 20, 30 years, you'll notice if you pay attention to, to, to Christian books and Christian publications in particular, we republish basically the exact same things. And I don't know if you've caught on yet, but the sermons, I mean, our content's been the same for a really long time. And we just keep preaching the exact same thing. And the next time there's a sermon series on joy, you know what you're going to do? I needed this. I so needed a dose of joy. Oh my gosh, this is what I've been lacking. And the next time there's a big sermon about loving God and loving people, you're going to have the epiphany of, I'm a jerk. I needed this too. I have not been loving God and loving people very well. There's a leak. There's a leak in our own faith and there's, there's a leak in our own kingdom culture. And for whatever reason, no matter how many great sermons or no matter how many one-liners or practical steps we get, it just doesn't work. And I think there's a reason for it. You see, so many times we want the fruit that God gives us absent obeying the laws that God has given us. And I know that sounds weird, right? Like coming from this stage, that's weird because we don't talk about the law all that much around here, right? Because that's like the Old Testament kind of stuff. And didn't Jesus come and like get rid of the law? Like the, the rules are, there are no rules, right? God loves you, no rules. I think there's even like a Bible ripped up at one point to help make the point. But that actually couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. See, Jesus came and he was approached by a teacher and the teacher asked him, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest of the law? What is the greatest of all these rules? Because they had hundreds of them. And Jesus looked at him and you know the answer because we plaster it all over everything. Love God and love people. These are the greatest commandments and all the law and all the prophets hang on them. What Jesus said didn't negate the old law. What Jesus said was a summary of the old law. He trimmed away all the fat and he said, if you'll just do these two things, everything else will fall into place. You won't need to keep Leviticus in your hip pocket so you have to pull it out every time and be like, can I eat pork or not? Can I wear that shirt or is that, is that not okay? Is that not kosher? Jesus was like, no, 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 let me simplify. Just love God and love people. But see, Jesus got these from the Old Testament law. And a lot of times we, we camp out on the whole love people part. And I, that, that's good. And that's awesome because so many of us, we all, we, we need help with that at times, many times. But I think for many of us, 
The reason why we don't experience joy like we probably should, while we don't ever experience the peace that surpasses understanding that Jesus talks about, while we don't experience love, while we don't experience that kingdom culture is because we get this first part wrong. We mess up here. See, Jesus got the whole love God idea from a portion of the 10 commandments. So we're gonna go backwards this morning before we can go forwards. We're gonna go back to the Old Testament to look at the OG law that inspired this. So for those of you, most of us are familiar with the story. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. You know, Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. He says no a whole bunch and you know, the plagues come and then Pharaoh lets God's people go. They, want, they, they go through the wilderness, there's the whole pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, the Red Sea thing. And then eventually they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. If you don't read books, I get it, I work with students. There's a great movie version called The Ten Commandments. But it stars Charlton Heston, it's old, but it's a good one. Check it out. And they see, they're at the foot of the mountain. They look up and they see the smoke. They see the lights. It looks like one of our church services just up at the top of the mountain. And God's people see it and they're like, we think God's up there. And Moses was like, yep, sure is. They're like, should someone go up there and talk to him? Moses was like, yep, someone should. They're like, we pick you. That looks scary. And it's kind of a big hike. Moses, you're going up there, buddy. Granted, at this point, Moses is like well approaching, if not over 100 years old. But hey, go for a hike, buddy. So they send Moses up to the top of the mountain to, to meet with God. And he's up there a really long time. And, and while he's up there, God's going to give Moses all the instructions, all the basis for the law. And the story goes like this in Exodus chapter 20. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Let me keep out here for just a minute. God's gonna say this because he knows that while Moses is up there, his people are gonna get bored. They're gonna think he died because he's up there for a long time and he's old. So while he's up there, they're going to decide, well, maybe Moses isn't coming down. Maybe God's not so cool as we thought. So let's just make our own. So they collect all the gold. The women take the earrings off. They throw it in the fire and out comes this golden calf. Because when people back then thought of, when they thought, hey, what should we worship? They thought baby cow. That's a great response. And so he, he knew that, that, and they were gonna look at this baby calf and say, this is what led us out of Egypt, even though we just made it. He knew, God knew, my people are not bright. And then he's gonna go on, you must not have any other God but me. I'm it, I am the beginning and the end. I am the alpha, I am the omega, I am it. I do not share, I am God. And then you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now, I remember when I was in Sunday school, it was Sunday school back then. And we taught this, th these two commandments seemed pretty, pretty, uh, pretty simple. They seemed pretty easy. And most of us, when we read it, it's like, yeah, we got that. We don't call ourselves by any other religious name. Most of us have been a Christian, like we were born a Christian. And we, we don't, you know, we don't really situate our homes around statues. Like, I mean, I, odds are you probably don't have an idol sitting in your home that you offer bird food to or burn anything to. I hope not. Maybe you do, I don't know. Like th this isn't really something that, that we do. And this was a real issue for God's people because they just came from a place where statues and idols were worshiped, where they had all these different gods and they, where they were going, they were gonna be surrounded by nations and people and live amongst nations and people that had temples to different gods that worshiped other gods. And so God through Moses is warning them against this thing that is a very, very churchy word. It's idolatry. 
the worship of idols, the worship of anything other than God. And when we hear that word as Christians, we, we, we kind of chafe against it because it's like, I'm obviously not doing this. Like I'm not bowing down to any statues. I don't have any other gods. Like that's not the way it works. Like that's, that, was, that was a back then problem. That's not a 2020 problem. We got problems, but that's not it. Because I don't situate my living room around a statue, but I do situate my living room around a television set that I spend an obscene amount of time around, that I stare at and I binge watch things. Meanwhile, the people that I claim to love the most are all around me, but also staring at the same TV screen like zombies, not loving, not connecting, some might say worshiping. I'll sacrifice relationship, I'll sacrifice time all to that box that I situate my living room around. But I don't have a problem with idolatry. We don't have a problem with worshiping things that we shouldn't, right? We don't have gods. We just, and we don't, we don't sacrifice to, to other gods because that would be weird. But, but don't mind everything that I'm going to pay and everything that you're going to give to, to, to live the life that you've always dreamed about, to be successful like you always wanted to be. Never mind the amount of money that you're gonna spend on that really cool watch or on that car or on that home or on that stellar vacation you're gonna post on social media and make everybody so jealous. Never mind all of that. Never mind the money or the cost that it's going to take and the, the toll that's going to be there in the terms of your relationships with your kids. Because it's going to be a really, really fine automobile. It's just going to cost you a couple evenings away from your children. It's going to be a killer house that might kill your marriage because of how much it's going to take away, because how much that idea and that picture, per that picture perfect life and that success and that money, how much it's really going to cost you. But we don't sacrifice. We don't, we don't have other gods. That's not one of them. It used to be back in the day when, when, when Moses gave these commands, there were temples where they would worship false gods and foreign gods and there would be temple prostitutes and in worship of their God, they would come together and they would perform obscene acts and they would defy the bounds that God set for sex and sexuality and defy the idea of family. Now we don't do that. Someone would see. You just unlock your phone and you can worship at the temple of sex all you want to. You just download the app and you can find somebody for a subtle hookup and no one will ever know. And we'll go and we'll go chasing after the God of sex because it promises to fulfill so many things and to give you companionship and fulfillment and all of those things. But in the end, it turns out to be a pretty cool, cruel God because it never actually delivers Instead, it just leaves you wanting more and more and more until the cost is a whole lot higher than just a little bit of time and some secrets and some shame. We don't have gods. We don't need gods, we don't have gods. Instead, we have kids. Kids that we literally begin to identify, that we pour ourselves into so much so that our identity becomes consumed in that child to which we would do anything for them. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Because we're their parents. Set them up for success. Make sure they are on all the teams. Make sure they get all the scholarships and champion success and all of that for them. Meanwhile, you teach them nothing about faith. But we don't have little gods. 
But then we'll run to that other person because they complete you and they fulfill you and we put so much on them or you put so much on your children and you so put so much on your husband or on your wife and when we make people our gods, they are terrible gods because they will fail you. And we define our joy and happiness on anyone else and we put that on anyone else other than the one who made us, they'll always fail us. We all have gods. One famous theologian said that our hearts are like idol factories. They're always looking for something to worship. And when we think we've struck one down, there's a brand new one. See, the culture of our lives, what we experience, those character traits, culture flows down. It flows down from whatever we make the king of our life. Whatever we make the priority, whatever your God is, that's where your culture comes from. Whatever you make first and foremost, alpha and omega, whatever defines you, whatever you go to, whatever you run to, that is what defines your life. And so many of our gods are cruel gods. And when our lives are defined by anything less than the one who made them, our lives will be joyless and loveless and peaceless without patience, hope, or any of the things that God promises. So let's play a game. Because I know a lot of you are like, bro, great and all, love what you're saying. I don't have any. I don't have any gods. Like you're crazy. There is nothing that I am giving my attention to. I am good. I have some questions for us to answer, for you to answer. If you have a, a, a journal, you take notes, maybe you wanna grab your phone out, go to your notes section. Write these questions down in case you don't wanna think about it too much now and you can ponder it later to figure out what your God, who your God actually is. So question one, what tends to consume your thoughts? What do you think about? What do you stay awake at night worrying over? What scares you or what terrifies you? Because what scares us, that show begins to show us the areas that we don't trust God enough in our lives. What do you obsess over? What's disappointed you? Who's disappointed you? And whose disappointment hurts you so deeply that it comes up over and over and over again and you just can't seem to shake it. You just can't seem to forgive it. Your thought process and your thought cycle always comes back to that speed bump. What makes you angry? What just causes you to lose control? And you can't love God and love people because they're just so stupid. Whose approval do you seek? When you do something good, who are you looking back behind your shoulder to see if they saw? Who do you want the attaboy from? Or you did so great, sweetie. Whose attention are you really after? Why are you really chasing after the success? Why are you really doing the things that you're doing? Whose approval are, are you looking to get? Who do you want to look at you and see you as valuable? Because they, that is the person who's calling the shots in your life. That's the person who is your God. And when I was preparing for this, this is the one that wrecked me the most. Because I have made so many of my life's choices and decisions and sacrifices based on wanting to approve other people, give the other approval of others with God as an afterthought. Know this, how do you spend your time? What's your calendar like? How many hours are you spending at your office? How many hours do you need to? 
How much time are you spending binge watching that TV show over and over and over and over again? And what could you be doing with that time? What do you spend your money on? What little trinkets or luxuries, game systems, video games, boats, cars, planes, trains, automobiles? Where do your resources go? Are you generous? Is any of it going to God at all? Or is that a bygone idea for a bygone era? What brings you comfort? What do you go to after a hard day? Do your knees hit the floor and do you seek God? Or do you go grab a pint and veg out in front of the silver screen? Has your mass become becoming a vegetable in front of TV while you eat a bunch of pretzels and burn it off with some alcohol? What do you go to? Is it pixels on your phone that distract you for a moment and leave you feeling shameful and empty afterwards? What do you sacrifice for? You're giving your time and your money for something. You're not comfortable and you're willing to sacrifice your comfort for something or someone. And where's your sanctuary? Where do you go when you need, when you need peace and when you need hope? And then what are your dreams? Dreams are great to have, but they're terrible when they become our obsession when we're willing to sacrifice to hurt anyone and anything to make it happen. The wolf on Wall Street who would sell his own mother or grandmother to make the deal may make for great television, but it makes for a crummy life. For so many of us, our faith and our words and our declaration of allegiance to our King, it's just that, it's empty words. The songs that we sing may not be shallow in their lyrics, but they're shallow in our hearts. The joy that we get and the peace that we experience, it doesn't last because the things that we've made king is anything than the one who deserves to be there. When our lives are defined by anything less than the one who made them, our lives, let's go to this next slide, Jansen. Our lives will be joyless, loveless, our faith will be powerless because it is. People will look that version of faith up and down and say, no, thank you. You're living the exact same life that I am. You only have some nice platitudes to keep you warm in a coffee mug with Jeremiah 29, 11. And that faith has nothing on the kingdom culture that only Jesus can provide. Our words will be meaningless and our life will be pointless. See, we're built to bow. We're built to worship. We're made to find our purpose and our significance in something else. It's why all of us, whether you believe in God or not, are constantly chasing one thing after another, obsessing over one person after another, putting everything we have in that career or in that person or in that deal or in that relationship or in that game or in that moment or in that TV show. It's why. And we will keep chasing over and over and over again 
until we put our hope in the only one that deserves it. So what about you? Because until you put Jesus where he belongs and you lay your idols down, joy will just be a cute sermon series with platitudes and one-liners. Love, it'll be nice to talk about, but you'll never really experience it until the king is on his throne. Now, I know for a lot of us, and maybe it's your story, maybe you decided to follow Jesus and you had that moment long ago, but in the end, that's all it was, was a moment. Because after you walked down that aisle or you filled out that card or you raised your hand at VBS or whatever your story was, nothing changed. You just kept chasing other gods because you didn't realize that chasing a king and pursuing a king and making Jesus your king meant he actually called the shots and you let everything else in your life call the shots. That's not following Jesus. That's not being a Christian. You just had a really funny, fun, fuzzy moment. But we have a God who gives second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And the God who gave the law on Mount Sinai, who clarified it for the teacher in the New Testament, was written about in the Psalms. And they said, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. He gives us grace upon grace. And it's never too late to change kings. It's never too late to topple down our idols. But when we topple down our idols, we can't, we can't replace them with another one. We have to replace them with the king. We have to come just as we are, broken, needy, and empty. And only then will he fill us. And only then can he heal us. And only then can we begin to experience the kingdom culture he came to give us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for paying the price so that we could experience joy and hope and life and love and all the things in between. And God, I'm the first to admit that my heart is prone to wander, that God, I, I have chased after idols and things and relationships that I have no business going after. And I have so many times not kept you the main thing and faced the consequences. And God, this morning, today, I repent of that. And I pray for those of us who have the same story that God, you would just, that you would put a fire in our bones to do the same, to cast down our idols and to put the only one who deserves to be on the throne, on the throne of our lives. And God, I pray in these next few moments for those of us who have never made that decision before, that you would do something supernatural in us, that you would breathe new life where there was none that you would give us hope though we've never experienced before, that you would help us take a step towards better. And we come just as we are. In your son's name and to your glory, amen.